Welcome to Armchair Generals, a podcast about geopolitics, international relations, and America's place in the world. I'm Garrett. With me in the armchair, as always, is Andrew. So this week in Ukraine, so, uh, not as much to talk about as as last few weeks, but interesting nonetheless. You know, it seems like the front lines have somewhat stabilized in preparation for a potential offensive, which I'm sure we'll discuss in detail. Uh, but the big thing I want to talk about are the partisans or the special forces or maybe even potentially the air raids that have occurred in Crimea and how that's affected not just the strategic and tactical situation in the war, but also from a kind of a geopolitical standpoint, uh, having Russian tourists flee Crimea from their summer holidays while uh, munitions blow up in the background can't be a good look for the Russian government. What are your thoughts on what you're seeing this week and how we expect to uh, what you foresee over the next few weeks? Yeah, I am in agreement with you that it seems like the Ukrainian uh, military is preparing for a significant counteroffensive in the uh, Kherson area. Um, I think that you know, it continued partisan activity um, in that oblast has increased and is is uh, is a threat to Russian supply lines in the rear. Also, you know, unclaimed uh, assaults on Crimea, specifically uh, that the airbase there, as well as an a, a, um, artillery depot, a munitions depot, uh, suggest that the groundwork is being laid for a push along that axis uh, to take Kherson and push Russia, Russian forces back. Um, they, the Russian Black Sea Fleet relieved its commander uh, this week and replaced him very quietly, which suggests that the misinformation or the information space that the Russian uh, Ministry of Defense has been putting out that these were accidental explosions uh, suggests that that is not the case. Really interesting. I mean, I I try to put myself in the in the perspective of both sides to try and get an idea of how things are going. But you know, the, the Russian information campaign that you know this is a special military operation that we as a country are just fighting some Nazis. It doesn't. It doesn't probably come across well when you're that Russian tourist and you've been told Crimea is safe. It's now part of Russia, and that you should go enjoy your 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 summer holiday, your August summer holiday on the beach in a war zone. And you know, for for the beginning of this war, it wasn't really a war zone, but now uh, I saw the the videos of the explosions in the background of the beach where people were fleeing from the beach. And then I saw photography, satellite photography of the uh, the lines of people trying to flee back into Russia over the bridge, I think, in Kerch. And it makes you wonder if these are just everyday people who are fleeing back into Russia, what are they going to say? What is society, the Russian society going to discuss? In In these situations, there's not it's not like a clear good and bad guy, right? Like a significant portion of the Ukrainians speak Russian. You know, the idea that they can 
find the partisans with ease, I think is is tough. They're, they blend in, they very well, you know, maybe of Russian ancestry, uh, who knows? Um, they speak the language, they look the same. It's not going to be, it's probably not a good look for, for the Russians locally to say this is now part of Russia and they're getting attacked. I mean, I saw, they say this is a red line that's being crossed. Obviously the Russians think that, it, or at least that's what they're saying publicly. The Ukrainians disagree. And I, I believe from what I read, the, the United States put no limitations on the use of uh, hardware we've provided to the Ukrainians vis-a-vis -vis their use in Crimea or any territory that was uh, considered Ukraine uh, prior to 2014. Yeah, it's it's really it's really interesting what's going on uh, it, because at the one on the one hand, as Western media is reporting, it strikes one as a static conflict that there are now established front lines and they are not mobile. There is no great tank formation battles where we're seeing you know, miles of territory swapped or even yards of territory swapped. But I think that belies what's actually happening, which on the Ukrainian side is a pause to refit, uh, refresh, bring new forces in, assess strategic weakness and vulnerabilities, specifically along that Kursan axis of advance, while the Russian forces play around in Izum and further to the north. Um, which sets the stage in my mind for you know a potential Ukrainian breakout that then encircles those forces from the south, cutting them off from supply routes in Crimea, cutting them off from supply routes through um, the very far south portion of the Russian Federation, which could be devastating for you know Russian combat power throughout the theater. Additionally, they are so resistant to general mobilization of forces inside of Russia that the meat grinder that this has become in terms of manpower means that they've begun quietly mobilizing Cossack forces. Have you have you seen any of this? Well, I, I remember reading about the, the the Wagner group being basically utilized as front frontline troops, but tell me more. Yeah, so it's a sort of similar the so the Cossacks, uh, Cossack organizations in Russia perform a bunch of state services, including law enforcement and um, military administrative tasks, but they're not typically frontline or even combat forces. But they're experiencing such an acute manpower shortage within the Russian military that they are deploying these units now to the combat theater, where this to, to avoid any sort of large scale mobilization of the Russian public. So these again, these are sort of reserve forces that generally do non-combatant tasks that are now being called up to frontline units. Um They've now run through their paramilitaries, the Wagner Group is an example. They've now used the, all the Chechen forces that they possibly can. You know, they've tried to recruit Syrians and other other uh, partisans from friendly governments. And and now it's they're really scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of manpower. Absolutely. It makes me wonder, too. I mean, I read statistics you know, that varied somewhere between 30 and 70,000 casualties 
that's a lot of Russians, ordinary, you know, military members who at some point will go home. And it, I wonder from a psychological perspective, as that information starts getting disseminated, because I don't believe internally in Russia, they've provided casualty figures since the first few weeks of the war. What's that going to, how that can affect morale? If this is a special military operation and you have 70,000 casualties, you know, tens of thousands dead out of that. Uh, is that a special military operation? I mean, that's more than they lost in in Afghanistan. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really shocking. Um, the you know the nominal rate of three to one killed to wounded suggests that some of these units are experiencing upwards of forty percent casualty, and I, you know I. What I have read is that the, in, in the in U.S. doctrine suggests casualty rates of 25% are, are unacceptable for a sustained combat operation. And so you're at almost double these rates of casualties. These are just, you cannot continue to take losses like this and have sustained combat effectiveness. It, it'll be a really interesting next six to eight weeks before the onset of winter to see what happens it does not appear to me that the russians are prepared to commit to a serious advance before the winter it does seem to me that the ukrainians are i read did you see this the um there are some reporting that they the russians are allowing uh, prisoners out of prison to to go no i did not see this yeah, so they were commuting sentences and setting them off to to fight. But if it's true, that really goes to the level of desperation just to get manpower. I mean, beyond the equipment, which we've talked about, this has been a, just a meat grinder for 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 people. But you know, thousands of armored vehicles destroyed. Um, I, I can't imagine that the um, the high military command is sitting there in, in, in Russia and thinking to themselves, yeah, you know, those, ex- those increases in defense spending over the last 15 years that was modernizing our forces. And we sent in what were our contract soldiers, our professional army, and we're now out of troops. Like, what, what do they think? Are they going to send in the recently drafted conscripts i mean there's they don't have you know the the majority of their military is conscripts they're there for a limited time are you going to send them for you know after six nine ten weeks of training to the front line i i wonder i wonder at a certain point how combat effective this can be and we we haven't touched on it but the level of attrition at the higher uh, officer ranks is is crazy for a modern war. I mean, I I think I saw that we had like one general ranked officer die in Iraq and Afghanistan. It was very low, and yet you know we hear in the first you know ten twelve weeks of the war that we've the Ukrainians have killed something like ten plus staff officers, and that's just that's just the staff officers KIA not including staff officers relieved, which is even a greater number has been replaced uh, at the staff officer level 
due to the combat effectiveness of the forces under their command. So, yeah, the Russian general staff is just seems like it's been hollowed out by by this war and is really quite shocking. So, you know, in this, in this week's news, it looks like uh, there's been another $750 million in aid provided by the U.S. You know, when, when you look at the list of what's being provided, it's, at least to me, it's telling that the the type of combat is changing potentially and that they're gearing up the ukrainians are being armed uh, in preparation for uh some type of counteroffensive. and a few i would like to call out a few items in there that i thought were interesting um mrap so mine resistant armor protected vehicles with uh, mine clearing attachments the big rollers that go in front and and, and clear mines so obviously thinking about you know deploying into enemy held territory i think there's 40 of them and additionally armored up armored uh, humvees for troop transportation so again expecting to move into uh, contested areas and 16 105 millimeter howitzers i believe the ukrainians received some of these from other western allies but i think this is the first time the us provided provided them so this is at least in my perspective, uh, signs that they're looking for, you know, shorter range artillery, counter battery fire as they're advancing into contested territory, likely in Kherson. And then the final um, piece of uh, hardware that was provided that I'm really interested in are the harm missiles. And this is interesting because we haven't heard much about the Ukrainian Air Force in a while. And this missile, from my understanding, would have to be used by Ukrainian um, airplanes, so uh, manned aircraft, and it's really targeting radar installations. So the first off, it seems like they, the U.S. was able to figure out how to get this missile to to uh, work with, you know, really a Soviet aircraft, and I'm sure part of it is basically fire and forget as it seeks and homes in on a radar signal. But it's interesting to me that they are providing this because they obviously think it will be useful in combating um, anti-aircraft and anti-aerial denial weapons that the Russians have. And that tells me um, it would likely be used in any form of offensive, as I think it has a range of about 80 miles. Yeah, it definitely seems like the deploying of increasing you know mobile um support armor the humvees these are these are highly mobile mraps you know highly mobile troop transport recon support um and the deployment of the 105s suggests that uh, we are again approaching a new phase where Ukraine will uh, take on a mobile uh, counter assault on these static front lines that we've seen um, in the hopes of maybe achieving a full breakout that really degrades Russia's offensive capabilities. Uh, and I suspect throughout the Kursan Oblast, because that seems to be the region we've seen the most partisan activity. Well, you know, in line with what you're saying, I've heard that really the 
the the fleet, the Russian fleet, has been forced to hug the coast of Crimea. I mean, after the Moskva, they, I don't think they've been out off of Odessa in force at all. I mean, mm. the loss of, or their, I wouldn't call it the loss, the inability to hold Snake Island, I think, was was very telling. Yes. Um, there's there's like a, a gray line, and then it, it it moves right. At first, it was oh we we can't give you we can't give you Howard Sirs because that's bad. Okay, we will give you we can't give you Highmark. Well, okay, we'll give you Highmark. You know, it was what's going to happen next. You know, especially when they're in if they try and take back the Donbas, they're going to need a lot of armored vehicles. It'll be intriguing. I mean, if you look what else was in this most recent aid package. Uh, 1,500 tow missiles and a thousand more javelins. Yeah. So they're thinking probably with the tow missiles, uh, hardened embedded targets from a distance, and similar things with javelins. There's going to be mobile uh, mobile armor. They're going to have to take out potentially, you know, stationary artillery, uh, and just clearing buildings. I think there's going to be a lot of that um, that warfare and. I, it will be interesting to me to see if the Ukrainians are up to it. Yeah, One yeah. thing that we, it's very different to protect and try and protect your city and defend it um, and hit people from, you know, as they're trying to get in. Uh, it's a whole other property issue to try and do urban warfare from an offensive perspective. I mean, the U.S. probably the best in the world at this since we've had 20 years dealing with this in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. But it's it's a tough one. I mean, it's a very different thing. It's very manpower intensive, and we'll see. And then sp- speaking of manpower, the one thing I never hear that I I can't wait for for us to get more clarity on this is all the men were not allowed to leave the Ukraine. Uh, that means hundreds of thousands, if not many, many more of military age, able-bodied men are in that country. I would assume they are being, a large chunk of them are being put through uh, basic training in essence right now. I, I I heard that the Brits were training, I think at, back back in England, they were training a decent chunk of, of folks, thousands of, of troops. But at some point, that's going to come due. And if the wars call over 100 days in, it'll be in- intriguing to me to say, is, where's that point in line where they okay, these people are now trained enough where they can go to combat operations. And you know, those folks have all been trained on Western equipment. So they're going to have, they may at some point have local superiority in, in, in their troops. And that will be interesting. And that will be different for the Russians. Uh, to have to deal with that. And I wonder what's going to happen when, if they only have, you know, 100,000 able-bodied troops in the Ukraine and the the Ukrainians attack with 400,000, what are they going to do? I think it's an interesting point you bring up. And the numbers are just the start of it. You, uh, soldiers who are motivated and have esprit de corps and high morale and are fighting for something, fighting affirmatively for an idea of their own nation and their own freedom are going to be much more tenacious and much more aggressive and have much more um, 
much more power, much more combat power than forces that don't have those things. And we've already seen this consistently throughout this campaign, that the Russian forces are poorly trained, they're poorly equipped, they're, they have poor morale, they have non-existent, um, non-existent non-commissioned officer ranks, and they have very poor leadership. So all of these things combined reduce the man-for-man effectiveness of, of their operational military. Add to that six months of brutal combat. Add to that a manpower shortage. Add to that an equipment shortage. They're in such a worse position today than they were in March. So it begs the question, while Ukraine has undoubtedly had casualties, and undoubtedly they're less well-equipped, but they're getting better equipped every day. Every day is another day where every, as you say, every adult male in the country who can or needs to pick up a weapon is being trained to use that weapon. What happens when that force uh, pivots and strikes? I think you've laid out very clearly the equipment that's being sent in the, these aid packages. These, this is the kind of equipment that assumes a rapid mobile warfare that I think we have to expect to show up next month or the month after. I would agree with you for most of it. I I think the Ukrainians have to at some point. So there's time. They can't. It's not a wait and see. You don't want to allow the Russians to create facts on the ground and dig in for all so I, I do think you do have a timeline. And the other limit is 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 the the winter. I, I don't generally everything I hear is the winter there is such that you can't really do a winter campaign. Um I don't know if that's true, but if we take that as fact, they have a few months. And I think that their approach is sound. Uh, they're kind of isolating the city of Kherson by by dropping um, the bridges and and the rail routes in, but that's also going to limit their ability to expand. Um, it isolates troops on the western bank, but it's also if they're going to hit the objectives that we discussed and try and really kind of lock off Crimea again. Uh, isolate Crimea, they're going to have to go beyond that river. And to do that, they're going to have to cross, I think the river is a half mile wide at points, um, over infrastructure they've already destroyed. And so it's not going to be easy to do that. I think they can take, they probably have a good shot of taking everything west of, of the Dnieper, but crossing in 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 force against a dug-in enemy with an artillery advantage, I think is going to be tough. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, I, at the end of the day, I haven't seen anything on the manpower that we're going to have in the for the Ukrainians versus the Russians in in that in the oblast, the Kherson oblast. If the Russians started with two hundred fifty thousand troops in the entire invasion. And they've had casualties, let's make the math easy, of 50,000, and then they've pulled in maybe another 10 or 15 
thousand um, kind of paramilitary forces. That still means they have maybe 200,000, 220,000 troops of which, you know, maybe 150 are actual combat troops. Uh, and that 150 has to cover their entire front line plus their, their territory that they've taken. Uh, so I expect if in the Coruscant Oblast, you just assume a third of the troops are there because that's where the, they expect the counteroffensives to occur. Maybe you end up with 50,000 Russians. How many Ukrainians are they going to have against that? Um, against them? I don't know. Uh, I think this is one of the big uh, secrets that the Ukrainians have done a, a good job, at least keeping out of the, the news of how many troops do they have at this point? How many are they preparing for combat? Uh, you made some really good points. This is their hometown. I'm sure a lot of these troops are trying to retake where they grew up. And they are going to be infinitely more motivated than a Chechen who's been basically hired as a mercenary uh, or a Russian who is from Eastern Russia and doesn't particularly care about the situation. So I, I think there's a shot. And if you look at the materials that the Ukrainians have been given recently, they're definitely preparing for this. And I expect our next um, allocation of equipment will probably be even more heavily weighted into armored vehicles, shorter range artillery, ISR platforms, and all the materials that you need for street-to-street -street fighting. And those are similar to what they we provided for them to defend against, you know, the, against the Russians attacking the cities. You're going to see a lot of uh, shoulder launch rockets, missiles, probably medium high caliber uh, assault weapons, uh, you know, probably mines, claymores, anti-personnel material would be my expectation. But uh, we're not, I don't know. It's much easier to defend than it is to attack. And the, and the Ukrainians have done a great job defending but uh, they have to change the mindset and we'll see. We will. And it's interesting, you know, they've, Ukraine has spent the net lat, they have been getting infusions of supplies from the West for, since the beginning of the war. How much of that material has been deployed to Ukraine? How much of it is still in the pipeline? And of the material supplied directly to Ukraine, how much of it is actually in the combat theater. We don't know. I mean, it's huge amounts of money, huge numbers of equipment, but that equipment doesn't, you don't snap your fingers and it magically transports itself from a depot in Kansas to the front lines of Ukraine. It has to, it has to go to Europe and then it has to go through Europe to the Ukraine border. It has to be handed over to Ukrainian forces and it needs to go to their depot. And then they need to get it into the combat theater. So we don't, while, while we know they have HIMARS in theater, how long did it take to get them there? That it, it took quite a bit of time. We know that they're now deploying 105s. How long did that take? It, weeks, probably. So, you know, all of those questions, how much of the material, how much of the aid is being used effectively to, to combat uh, Russian forces, we, we don't know. We also don't have good insight into, as you said, Ukrainian casualties. You know, Russian casualties are being reported, and there's obviously much greater interest in how poorly Russia is doing in Western media. But Ukraine has done a very good job 
of keeping their own casualty figures out of the public eye. And the other thing that is not clear to me, which I think caution, uh, I think you're right to suggest caution on any kind of counteroffensive east of the Dnieper River, is that territory was, much of that territory was already only partially controlled by the Ukrainian central government, was already a hotbed of separatist forces. So will Ukrainian men from Kiev, Ukrainian men from Lviv, you know, throughout the country be as motivated and will local, the local populace be as happy to be liberated from Russian control as other territory in other parts of the country? I think that's an open-ended question as well, which all of that can affect the effect that can affect the outcome of any kind of counteroffensive. It's going to be interesting, and over our <clears throat> the coming weeks of our show, uh, I can't wait to to discuss it all. Yeah, it'll be it'll be exciting, it'll be interesting, it'll be informative, and uh, and yeah, I look forward to many more interesting conversations with you about the future of Ukraine and uh, military happenings all over the world. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us in the armchair this week. I've been Garrett Rowe. For Andrew and I, thanks for listening. 